Today's scripture is found in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's jump into uh, uh, the word this morning. Um, I have the privilege of opening God's word and really just closing us out on our one anothering sermon series. And, and today we're going to talk about service. We're going to be in 1 Peter 4 this morning. Uh, so Brian actually, I'm going to move this. Brian actually touched on this passage about a month ago or so. Um, and he, he talked specifically about biblical hospitality. And this morning, we're going to kind of turn the diamond, if you will, of 1 Peter 4 to see a different facet, to see what God has to say to us about serving one another, about service. Um, But before we jump in, let me pray. Father God, I just pray that uh, your spirit would move, um, that you would breathe life into your word. God, that you would work on our hearts right now, open our eyes, uh, unstop our ears to see all the the ways that you have served us, and all the ways that you have called us to serve one another. In your name, amen. Amen. Uh, Well, one of my favorite movies uh, is that actually my my wife doesn't so much care for. She doesn't hate, so please don't send her hate mail after this. She doesn't hate it, but it's not one of her favorite movies. It's The Princess Bride. Do you guys like the movie The Princess Bride? Okay. (laughs) Sorry, honey. Sorry. Um, no, but uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies. It's the greatest love story ever told. Well, probably not. That's probably in like notebook or something, but it's a, it's a comedy. It's a comedy and it's filled with great characters. It's filled with like really quotable lines, good plot twists, all the things that make up a great comedy movie. Um, and if you're familiar with the story, it starts off kind of in modern day times. This grandpa is visiting his sick grandson and to kind of keep him company, he starts reading this story, uh, The Princess Bride. And so the, as the story starts off, uh, it introduces this beautiful woman, and her name's Buttercup. And she spends her days on her farm, ordering her farmhand around, and his name's Wesley. And so she'd say things, uh, different things to do her bidding, right? And so she'd say stuff like, hey, farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it in the morning. To which the farm boy would respond with, if you know the line, what would we say? As you wish. Wow, a lot of Princess Bride fans. That's great. Um, And so he'd say, as you wish, right? And then we're told that by the grandfather that as you wish was all that Wesley would ever say to her. And so uh, uh, Buttercup and Wesley, they'd have many more interactions like this where she's kind of ordering him around, telling him to do this, telling him to do that. One particular day, uh, he's out chopping wood, doing one of the things that he was asked to do. And in the middle of that, she comes up with these barrels, drops them at his feet, and she says, uh, farm boy, fill these with water, please. To which Wesley replies with, as you wish, right? Um, then she kind of like turns away and Wesley's just looking at her with just this adoring look, this romantic 
kind of music is playing, and, and she goes and she turns, and as she turns, he, he, his eyes come off of her, but now she's looking at him, and then the scene cuts back to the grandfather, who's reading the story, and this is what he says. He's reading the story. He says, that day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And this is the heart of what I want us to see this morning as we look at 1 Peter 4 when, and the command to serve. That when we serve one another, when we effectively say, as you wish, to another person, we're not only saying, I love you to them, but we're saying, I love you to Jesus Christ. So if you're a note taker, our main idea this morning is this. Our service towards one another is an act of love to God that brings him glory. And we're going to see this main idea kind of fleshed out through three main points. The first one is our earnest love for one another covers sin. And we're going to talk a little bit about what, what do you mean covers sin? Secondly, our hospitality for one another is life-saving. And again, we'll talk about what life-saving means. And lastly, we're going to talk about uh, our spiritual, how our spiritual gifts exist to serve one another for the glory of God. But before we jump into our three points this morning, um, we're, we're going to see that this text really starts off in an interesting way. I don't know if you noticed this. Um, Peter doesn't kick off the message here about serving one another by saying, hey, I have a strengths finder test uh, that I want you to do. I have an Enneagram that I want you to fill out to kind of figure out what, what, what spiritual gifts you have. No, no, the backdrop for Peter's call for service here is focused on the end times. So we read verse 7, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So he starts off with the end of all things is at hand. There's a perspective and a context that Peter is, is laying before the church that we kind of need to understand before we get into these commands of service. So first, who's Peter writing to? Right? So we've got to jump back to chapter 1, verse 1 of the letter. We see that Peter's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. This is who he's titled it to. There's, these, these people were scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And these are, these are Christians. These are people who are facing troubling times because of their faith. These Christians are going through real persecution, real struggle. Not just a backlash because I posted a conservative comment on my Twitter this is real persecution. People are being separated. Families are being tortured. Women and children are being killed because they profess the name of Jesus Christ. The emperor during this time is Nero. You might have heard his name before. Maybe you took a history class. Maybe you heard about him in uh, a church before. But Nero's persecutions towards Christians were horrific. This was, this, Christians are being arrested they're being crucified, burned alive. They're being thrown into coliseums with wild beasts. They're being lit up as torches in the night. But what was worse was the ostracism and the condemnation of, of Christians on this that was enforced at a local level. This wasn't just the persecution, guys, of a, a few Christians who happened to live in Rome, right? It's not the, a, a persecution of a few, you know, house churches that are meeting in Rome that, that Nero and his guard could kind of round up and, 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 and do this to. Peter says in chapter 5 that the persecution of Christians is a worldwide event that's happening. So, 
This is the backdrop. That's the context to which Peter commands the church to serve one another. So Peter, what does he mean? What does Peter mean when he says the end of all things is at hand? Is he saying, hey, the end of the world is near? Is he saying, hey, Nero, Nero's killing more and more Christians. Soon Christians are going to be extinct. The end is near. Is he saying, there's an asteroid coming, you know, and it's going to hit the planet. We got to take high ground. Now, he's not saying any of those things. What he's saying is Peter really wants believers to think and to live rightly in view of the end. He wants the reality of the end of all things to really shape the behavior of the Christian's life. So when Peter says the end is near, he's really pointing us towards that final stage of God's redemptive plan. You guys know that you're living in that stage right now. Jesus has died on the cross. Death is defeated. But we still have the presence of sin. That'll be dealt with in the future. Peter is calling the Christian to live in light of that eternal plan. To live in light of a certain hope in an an all-too-distant future. So it's this reality that the end of all things is near that Peter then grounds his exhortations to the church to serve one another. So Peter says, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uh, that, okay. We could start with prayer, Peter. Usually we throw that at the end, but um, all right, we'll start with prayer. Why does Peter do this? So in light of God's final stage of his redemptive plan, Peter's first concern is prayer. We might expect Peter to jump straight into service. I mean, we're talking about service here. Peter's going to talk about serving one another. Why not just jump straight into serving? No, Peter exhorts Christians living in the last days to pray. And, And it's because it's through prayer that we call on God to act and to work in our lives. Uh, Brian talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We talked, he talked about prayer. Um, he reminded us that we pray as Christians because it's, it's a command, first of all. But secondly, we're given access to the power of God through prayer. We, we, when we pray with this perspective that we're living in this stage of God's redemptive plan, it, it leads us to depend on him more and more. And what is prayer, right? It's a posturing of the heart. Prayer gives us an eternal perspective. Prayer reminds us of whose victory we're standing in when we say, in Jesus' name, right? Does the reality of the gospel motivate this type of prayer life for you? Do you you pray? Brian walked us through some of the, a couple weeks ago, some of these deep prayers of Paul, like we see in Colossians and other places. Um, And he encouraged us to pray about deeper spiritual things. How's that going? How are you doing with that? I don't think it's a coincidence that this is where Peter starts. Before getting into exhortations towards service in verses 8 through 11, Peter starts with prayer. Because prayer aligns our will with God's, not the other way around. Oftentimes, we come to to God in prayer as a last resort. God, please just do this. We're trying to bend God to do what we want. Prayer is, is, is shaping us to align to his will more. 
Prayer is the means in which we as Christians receive God's supernatural help. It's, it's through prayer, Christians, that the power and the grace of God can flow through us in service towards one another. That's why Peter starts with prayer. And that, here's where we get to our first point. Point one, our love for one another covers sin. Let's read in verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So we see that Peter moves into this next verse by, by emphasizing our love for one another. See what he says? He says, above all, keep loving. He's speaking of a love here that's, that's not emotionally charged by what side of the bed you woke up on this morning. It's not emotionally charged by the fact that maybe the person in front of you in, Star, in Starbucks line bought your coffee and you're like, oh, I'm going to just love people today. Man, I'm going to pay it forward. No, it's not emotionally influenced by that. It's, it's, it's motivated and it's fueled by the gospel and it sustains us and sees us through the difficulties that we're going to face as Christians. Love is of first importance when we serve one another. So much so, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, listen to what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all away that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, Paul, just like Peter, he puts this great emphasis on us loving one another earnestly. And you, do you want to know why? It's because our love for one another is actually the greatest evidence that we are in fact Christians. Let me say that again. Our love towards one another is actually the greatest evidence to others, to your own heart, to yourself, that you are in fact a Christian. It's not our spiritual gifts. It's not um, how much knowledge of scripture we have. It's not how much we give away. Our earnest love proves those things. It's through the tangible acts of service that demonstrates where our true and our, our abiding hope lies. To be able to say um, with, with confidence that you love Jesus, to be able to say that, you have to love his church. Because the love of Christ, Christ's love for the church is, is, is surpassing love. He died for the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives instructions to husbands regarding uh, how, uh, how they should love their wives. He says this, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if you love Jesus, you're going to love the things that he loves, right? If you love Jesus, you're going to love his church. To love Jesus is to love the church. To love the church is to love Jesus. And this is why Jesus responds to the Pharisees in Matthew 22. Uh, I think Lucas brought this up a couple weeks ago. Uh, they, they asked him, uh, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. 
and the second is like it. So it's linked. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus and the church became inseparably linked at the cross of Christ when he died in her place. So do you love your neighbor? Do you love the church? Does your heart swell with this deep and abiding affection uh, for the people of God? For the people in this room? The, the person maybe you're touching shoulders with right now, the, the person in your growth group, the person that takes the class with you on your service team, d- does your heart break for those, for the one another's in this church? Because we often say, I know I, I, I say all the time, we say, man, I, I want to be, be more Christ-like. We sing, break my heart for what breaks yours. We say, I want to be more holy I want to love the things that God loves, right? We say these things, but do we ever stop to consider all the ways that Jesus loves his church? And then do we allow that affection to motivate ours? The church is the bride of Christ and Jesus loved the church. Look at all the ways he sacrificed. Look at all the ways he served her. This is a love that Leon Morris says, it's a love for the utterly unworthy a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It's a love lavished on others without thought whether they are worthy or not. This is earnest love. So we as Christians, we should earnestly love one another because we see this but modeled by Jesus, but we also see something else in the text. Peter says, we should keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So what does Peter mean here? What does Peter mean here when he says, Love covers a multitude of sins. So does that mean, Chris, that um, if I provide a meal to somebody in the church because they, they needed a meal, that that covers my adulterous relationship that I'm having? No, <laughs> that's not what Peter's saying. The concern here is, is for an earnest love. And he's using a paraphrase of Proverbs ten twelve. It says this, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So what Peter's trying to get across here is that when we earnestly love one another, we're, gonna, we're not going to allow the sins, the wrongdoings done from somebody else. We're not going to allow that to cause disunity. I'm going to cover them with my love. The concern here is for an earnest love that keeps the unity and the bond of peace within the body of Christ. Um, in fact, Peter, the writer of this letter in Matthew 18 he comes up to Jesus, right? We all know Peter. He get, I feel like he gets a bad rap, but he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, um, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? I'm pretty, that's pretty generous. And Jesus is like, no, 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 77 times. In other words, Peter, without limits. This is the same idea. But, but Peter's not saying that uh, sin within the church needs to be swept under the rug. He's not saying that. He's saying that, nor is he saying that we can atone for our sins if we just love one another. What he is saying, what he's getting at is that we should earnestly love one another in a way that the sins and the offenses of others are overlooked. When, when I lack, when you lack this type of earnest love for one, one another, when I lack this type of earnest love for, for somebody in the church, 
every word they say, if they've offended me, everything that they've done, and maybe it's in the past, every word they've said, every word they'll say, I view with suspicion. Every, maybe their body language, I interpret it wrongly. Um, I view them with suspicion. I don't trust them because I'm not earnestly loving them. Every action's misunderstood when we don't love this way. But not so when we earnestly love one another. Martin Luther has said, as God with his love covers my sins if I believe, so must I also cover the sins of my neighbor. So this is how we as Christians should love one another in light of the gospel and how we effectively cover one another's sins. And this brings us to our second point. Point number two. Hospitality towards one another is life-saving. Verse nine, it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So if you're at our family service uh, about a month ago, Brian talked about this verse and specifically talked about uh, hospitality and what biblical hospitality is. I'm not gonna spend too much time uh, talking about this, but but I, I, I want you to, uh, to see some of the main things. Maybe you missed the service, but I, just as a way of reminder. Um, Peter says in this verse, to show hospitality without grumbling. So hospitality is all about the needs of our guests and not our image. But it tends to be backwards, right? We tend to, like, how are they going to view me? Oh, I have a dirty home, right? Brian talked about these things. Brian also shared that, that our view of hospitality should not be based on what we can give, but on how we can serve the needs of others. Oftentimes, we, when we think of hospitality, we think of entertainment, don't we? Like, oh, I got to make sure I have the right music. I got to make sure I have the right appetizers, the right whatever. Get the bounce house. Oh, let's do it, honey. Let's get the bounce house. <laughs> Remember, these Christians that Peter's writing to, they're losing their lives for their faith. Many are on the run. Many have been ostracized by their communities, by even their own families because of their faith. And Peter's not saying here, hey, these Christians are having a hard time, guys. Throw them a pizza party, give them a high five and send them on their way. No. The reason why I'm saying that hospitality for one another is life-saving is because it actually was in the early church. If it wasn't for this type of hospitality in the early church, uh, or even today in, in some other areas and even in communist countries, people wouldn't have been able to meet in these church homes for ministers, pastors, preachers wouldn't have been able to come and stay safely and, and, and effectively evangelize to the different areas of the world. Now, when we think of biblical hospitality, say, like, oh, okay, Chris, biblical hospitality, that makes sense. It's providing shelter for the advancement of the gospel. So if a celebrity pastor comes in the area, they can stay at my place. That's cool. But what does biblical hospitality look like? for the one and others here in Foothill Church, Glendora, California. And how is it life-saving? Well, even though we're not living in a communist country, we're not, we don't have the threat of somebody kicking down the door and, and taking us away or killing us because of our faith, hospitality to one another in the church here at Foothill in Glendora is still life-saving. And let me tell you why. It's because it provides a sanctum for the believer, a sanctum from the spiritual attacks 
the, the, uh, the, 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 the schemes of the enemy, of the evil one. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say about the importance of Christian community. He says, some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude, but believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks and so do God's people. So you see what he's kind of getting at? Community that's created by Christians through biblical hospitality is so important because it provides a refuge. It provides a, a, a sanctum for, for the attacks from the evil one. As, as Peter's going to say, who, who um, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So biblical hospitality provides a place for, to, to gather those sheep so that they won't be destroyed. Our third point and our final point. We're going to spend most of our time here. Spiritual gifts exist to serve one another for the glory of God. Let's read verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So just like we've seen with love and hospitality, spiritual gifts, our spiritual gifts, should be used to serve one another. Peter says, did you notice this? Peter says that each Christian has received a gift. He says, as each has received so spiritual gifts are not specifically reserved for like the uber holy. You don't need to go to seminary to receive a spiritual gift. You don't need to memorize Romans 9 or all the book of Romans to receive a spiritual gift. All Christians have been given a spiritual gift for the purpose of serving the body of Christ. It's important to distinguish here that Peter's not talking about talent. I think sometimes we get those mixed up, right? You might be a fast swimmer a great athlete, a savvy businessman. You might be a great entrepreneur. You might have a, uh, you might have a, a gifted mind. Those are not spiritual gifts. Those are talents. And I hope that you praise God and he, he's given the due praise for those in your life. But spiritual gifts are different. And so what are spiritual gifts? Well, the word gift here in Greek is translated as charisma. And we kind of use this word in our English language, but it speaks of the gifts that believers have received as the result of God's grace. So in the Bible, we see this word translated uh, in different ways, uh, speaking of spiritual gifts. It could be speaking of calling or even be speaking of salvation, but Peter uses it here to speak of spiritual gifts. And he's talking about these supernatural spiritual gifts that God has given to believers for the purpose of serving one another. Thomas Schreiner offers a great definition of what the gifts of the Spirit are. He says, the gifts of the Spirit are the gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit to individual Christians. These gifts are to be exercised under the Lordship of Christ for the edification of his body, the church. Christians are not to think too highly or lowly about the gifts that God has given them, but are to remember that it is God who has sovereignly and wisely given them. Each gift is needed. 
So we see in this passage, Peter gives us two categories of gifts, right? Uh, There are other passages in in your Bible that that speak in more detail about the different spiritual gifts, um, like 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Um, I'm not, I don't have time this morning to jump into those different various lists of gifts and all these things. But what I do want us to see in this passage is God's motive. What's God's motive in giving us these gifts? Well, Peter says that we should use them to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So spiritual gifts, Christian, are not given to us to build up our platform our social media presence, our pride, our influence. Gifts are given to the church to serve one another. It's for the building up of the body. Each person, if you're a Christian, each person in this room has received a spiritual gift. And you have to steward that well. There are so many opportunities to serve one another in the church. Whether it's providing a meal to, maybe it's a family in your growth group, they, they're, they're sick and you're providing a meal. Maybe it's somebody who is moving and you're helping them move. Maybe it's, it's serving communion on Sundays. It's teaching kids about the love of Jesus. Where are you using your gift? Are you serving others within the church? Because you can. You should. Not only because it's a command, because, because you're actually missing out if you don't. And here's what I mean. When I was studying this passage and others that talk about the spiritual gifts, I, I came across something Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. He says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And he's talking about spiritual gifts here. Paul, in this verse, links our service, what he calls the common good. He links that to the presence of God. So did you know that God's presence is actually manifested in and through your service towards one another? Paul says to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And so then it follows if we're not serving one another, we're missing out on the presence of God in our lives. Um, In fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus shares this example of how he's manifestly present in our service towards one another. Um, It's a well-known passage. He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about how God's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And in verse 37, the righteous answer him and they're saying, wait, wait, Jesus, when, when did we serve you? When, when did we, uh, when were you hungry? When were you thirsty? I don't understand. When were you, when were you a stranger? When were you naked or in prison? And then In verse 40, Jesus says, The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, Jesus is manifestly present in our service towards one another. But how often do we overlook the needs within our own churches, those that are hungry, those that are thirsty 
imprisoned by sin, naked, strangers. This is what Peter's getting at when he's talking about using our spiritual gifts to serve one another. These gifts are not a privilege, they're a responsibility. And how we steward these gifts make an eternal difference as we just read in Matthew 25. And as we keep reading, we see that Peter's going to conclude verse 11 by condensing the list of spiritual gifts into these two categories, right? And then he's going to remind us of what our aim and perspective should be in service. So this is what he says. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So there's these two categories that, that, that Peter gives and they're helpful for us because no, ma- no matter how you slice it, speaking and serving kind of make up all the activities we do in church, right? So the individual who's ministering to others by maybe they're utilizing their speaking gifts, um, that's like preaching on the, uh, from the pulpit, teaching in Foothill Kids, teaching in our classes ministry. Maybe you're evangelizing to a neighbor. Peter's saying that we should do it all with, we should endeavor to speak God's words. It means that we speak and we use words that are only consistent with the gospel in our speech. And similarly, when, when Peter talks about the gifts of service, it's founded and it's, 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 its foundation is in the reality of the gospel, right? Whether we speak, whether we serve, we must not rely on our own strength in the midst of it. Whether we're teaching uh, kids about Nehemiah to third graders, we're helping somebody find a parking spot or serving them communion, we do it all with the strength that God supplies. And Peter says that we do all these things. We love, we're hospitable, we serve, in order that in everything, God may be glorified. Paul says in Colossians 3.23, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And I know personally, man, I've failed so many times in my life at this, at having this perspective in service. Maybe you have too. Because serving one another, it's a hard thing to do. It takes an eternal mindset. It takes a perspective on our part. It takes prayer. Not only in the surrender to actually serve, but in the midst of it, not to find strength within myself while I'm doing it, right? And some of you are, are regularly and faithfully serving one another. And if so, praise God. I hope you realize that's a gift of the Spirit and that's a grace of the Spirit in your life. But we can often lose sight of who we're working for, who we are, who we're bringing glory to, Who's going to reward us in the end? I've found in my personal experience that serving others becomes harder to do when someone treats you like a servant, doesn't it? We want to serve on our terms. We want to serve when it's convenient for us. When when our gifts are highlighted the most, that's where I'm going to serve. I came across this poem in my study and, and it hit me hard. I think mean, it humbled me <laughs> um, because it speaks to where I found my heart. Maybe it will resonate with you too. This is what it says. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. 
Real service is what I desire. I'll sing you a solo anytime, dear Lord. Just don't ask me to sing in the choir. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I like to see things come to pass, but don't ask me to teach boys and girls, dear Lord. I like, I'd rather just stay in my class. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I yearn for thy kingdom to thrive. I'll give you my nickels and dimes, dear Lord. Please don't ask me to tithe. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say, but I'm busy with myself right now, dear Lord. I'll help you some other day. I think if we're totally honest with ourselves this morning, we, we've felt like that before. Maybe you currently feel like this, but this is why we need to be reminded of, of the gospel. We need to be reminded of Jesus and his example of humility and service towards us. Remembering that on the night that he was betrayed, he's reclining at the table with his disciples. He gets up. He stoops down to wash his disciples' feet, their dirty feet, and to serve them in that way. Jesus, the, the Lord of creation, gets up from the table. He untucks the napkin that's in his shirt. He throws on an apron. He bends down to wash and to serve others. And for some of us this morning, you might need to take off the bib. You might need to untuck that napkin and you need to get up from the table. Maybe you've let others serve you for far too long. We all have been given a gift and we need to steward it well. There are people in this room whose aprons are tattered and they're torn from years of service. If you're a Christian, you need to know you and I, we've been saved to serve. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 pretty well, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. And we read that and we say, praise God for your grace. Lord, you're so good. It's a gift. I don't have to do anything to earn it or deserve it. And that's true. But then we see it in the following verse. Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He doesn't say, oh, maybe you'll walk in them. We should walk in them. Friends, don't miss out on the manifest presence of God in your life. Do you pray for his presence? Do you want the presence of God? Serve. Don't buy into the lie that I can love Jesus, I just don't love his church. We've all been stewarded gift. Earnestly desire it. Pray for it. Use it to love one another, to be hospitable to one another, and to serve one another. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the suffering of your son in our place, we confess that we habitually look to our own interests above those of others. Jesus, thank you for being our faithful substitute in life and in death, for drinking the cup of your father's wrath, of 
judgment of sin in our behalf. Spirit, I pray that you transform us into humble servants who joyfully lay down our lives for others. And that we would do this all for your fame, all for your glory in the name of our great and mighty King. Amen.